Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, that leaked draft opinion suggesting the Supreme Court is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, we'll examine impacts beyond abortion rights with Georgia State law professor Tanya Washington. Also, noted political science scholar and author Yasha Monk comes to Atlanta tomorrow for a talk about his new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. But we'll speak to him first. All those conversations are coming up, but we'll begin with this. Authorities are still investigating why suspects shot at a Gwinnett County school bus in the early morning. Now, at this time, here's what is known. A woman reportedly opened fire on a Gwinnett County school bus in Swanee, Georgia. Several students were on board at the time of the shooting. Amid the incident, the driver maneuvered the bus out of range of the shooter to Riverside Elementary. The driver suffered minor injuries while no children on board were harmed. The Gwinnett County Police Department is currently unaware of the woman's motive. The suspect has been arrested, as we mentioned, and is in custody. In other news, there were many weekend sermons and messages about reproductive justice after the recent leak of that Supreme Court opinion draft. In his Mother's Day message at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Senior Pastor and Senator Raphael Warnock said, quote, anti-abortion activists are engaging in hypocrisy. According to the AJC, Warnock said those activists are not standing up for children in other ways like supporting public education, universal pre-K, and reducing the nation's incarceration rates. He went on to say the focus should turn to public policy addressing mothers who are currently struggling and just trying to make it. Meanwhile, on the other side, a small group of abortion rights opponents rallied inside the state capitol last Friday. As we hear from our politics reporter Raul Bali, he says advocates are both excited and concerned. Cole Musio of the Christian advocacy group Frontline Policy Council worries the draft leak could affect the final Supreme Court decision. Let's be clear, should the substance of this opinion change, it will underscore a constitutional crisis and a complete breach of trust with an independent court. Our message today to the Supreme Court is simple. Hold the line. Republican Georgia Congressman Jody High says activists need to get ready to fight on the state level if the court overturns Roe. When this is kicked back to the states, it is going to be a battle in every state across this country. And this is a time for us to understand that, to regain our focus and our energies. Tomorrow, abortion rights advocates are planning a rally in downtown Atlanta to mobilize against abortion restrictions. At the state capitol, Raul Bally, WABE News. In other news, housing investors investors have been playing a bigger role in Metro Atlanta than any other market. Well, it's according to Real Estate Reports. As we hear from Stephanie Stokes, she looks at the possible benefits and cost. The growth of investors in Atlanta is all over recent real estate analysis on YouTube and podcasts. You remember Occupy Wall Street. Well, Wall Street's occupying uh, real estate right now, especially in Atlanta. We're now the number one market for investors buying mm. homes. Studies by housing sites Redfin and CoreLogic estimate 30 to 40 percent of Atlanta home sales were to investors. That's over two different periods last year. David Howard represents some of those investors, the ones who rent out single-family homes. He runs the National Rental Home Council. He says in Atlanta, investors are following people. Atlanta has had tremendous in migration over the past two, four, five years, tremendous job growth. It's an expanding market. That all leads to a demand for housing. Howard says investors buying single-family homes, some of whom are big companies, are just providing options. We're going to make homes accessible in those neighborhoods where people want to live. 
But in a tight housing market, investors could reduce options for some Atlanta residents. That worries Karen Hatcher, president of the Atlanta Realtors Association. It's tough if you're on the lower income side of the bracket. Throughout the pandemic, few homes have been for sale. In the last year, prices rose 20 percent. And buyers have to compete with investors who can make cash offers and waive inspections. We just want to make sure that we are ensuring that there is a healthy housing environment where everyone can participate. Which includes investors. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. And we'd like to hear from you. Are you out there trying to buy a home but just can't seem the top, have the top price? Well, let us know. We'd like to talk to you. Rose at WABE.org. And finally. Wheeler wisely pulls it back. Then launches the three. Buries it. That's the mismatch right there. Final seven seconds. It'll be too little. What a win for the Atlanta Dream. Yes, what a win for the Atlanta Dream and new head coach Tanisha Wright. The Dream was on the road in Dallas to play the Wings. Overall, WNBA number one draft pick Ryan Howard had 16 points as the Dream won 66-59. It's just game one, and although it's early in the season, Coach Wright says there's always room for improvement. I think offensively we have to stay in our stuff. We did a lot of standing today when things weren't going well, when when they started to up their defensive intensity. We did a lot of standing and looking and different things like that. We offensively, we play an open style, so we have to utilize that a lot better than what we did today, especially when teams start to kick up their defensive presence. Spoken like a true coach, the Atlanta Dream home opener is this Wednesday at the Gateway Center Arena in College Park when the L.A. Sparks come to town. Tip-off. It's 7 p.m. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now from WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Scholars, experts, advocates, analysts all weighing in on the optics regarding the leaked draft opinion regarding Roe versus Wade. Now, NPR's legal affairs correspondent, you all know her, Nina Totenberg, had her own theory as to how the leak occurred. Here's Totenberg on ABC's Sunday morning program this week. An entire draft of a majority opinion, that has never, ever occurred before and it can only in all likelihood have come from a justice that i think is less likely uh perhaps one of the clerks and the leading the leading theory is a conservative clerk who was afraid that one of the conservatives might be persuaded by chief justice roberts and to join a much more um, moderate opinion so much to talk about. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this, she's become a regular contributor regarding legal history in our nation's high court from Georgia State University School of Law, Professor Tanya Washington. Professor, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. Professor Washington, let's start with the leak itself. You heard NPR's Nina Totenberg and, and her theory. You're, first of all, what she had to say. What do you make of that? I mean, she's right that this is unprecedented. I did not clerk on the U.S. Supreme Court Court, but I did clerk on the Supreme Court for the um, state of Maryland. And uh, clerks were very clear that we were not supposed to share any drafts of any information um, that we had pr- access to by virtue of our position. And so, it, you know, it is disturbing that the process was departed from for what may be political reasons. 
Let's, and now the court is having to respond to the public response to the leaked draft. Let's talk about process because we like to educate folks here. For those who may not be familiar, or really totally understand the role of clerks. What do you all do? Yes. What do they do? So clerks help judges um, to research and draft portions of opinions. Um, it is a, 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 an amazing experience for a young lawyer, law graduate to have because you get to kind of see how the sausage is made. And part of that is an understanding of professionalism and confidentiality that uh, attaches to the work of a clerk. And so we are privy to the drafts that our uh, justices for whom we work or the judges for whom we work uh, draft. And then those drafts are circulated among the justices and uh, they comment on the drafts. Um, they decide whether they want to write a concurring opinion, mm -hmm. agreeing with parts of it, disagreeing with other parts of it, or dissenting opinions. So there's a lot that happens on the court after that first draft is circulated, but all of it is supposed to be shrouded in um, secrecy, right? Until the court announces its final decision. And whoever uh, breached that process um, did so, I think, um, in a way that, that dis disadvantages the institution and independence of the Supreme Court. And Professor, because you are knowledgeable in this area, would it be possible that anyone else besides a clerk or one of the justices would have access to these drafts? Only if a clerk or one of the justices shared it with someone else, a spouse, a family member, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but these, these documents are supposed to only um, be uh, viewed and accessible by those who are working for the court. Nina Tartenberg went on to say that, and, and many others have said it, that they believe through their lens, it's highly unlikely who's responsible for this leak will ever be discovered. What do you think? I don't know about that. Um, we've got a lot, I watch a lot of CSI, Rose. <laughs> and so we have ways of like tracking the paper that, mm -hmm documents are printed on. I think there will be more of a footprint if it was shared electronically. Um, I think it might be easier to identify the person, but if it was shared, if a hard copy was shared, I think it is more difficult, but not impossible for them to determine who leaked this information. I doubt that Politico, out of respect for its sources and under the, the protection of the First Amendment, is going to share that information. And as a journalist, I totally understand that. <laughs> But but they are they are looking for this person. And it is if it is a clerk, um, it is going to be uh, have implications for his or her career. So let's talk about process here. And could this change the process um, in the future? What do you think of how all this is, is, is even what the process, even the steps involved? Could this be changed? I, I think so. I think the, the court um, will respond to it. I think Chief Justice Roberts as the chief justice will probably re-examine um, and implement new processes and protocols to make sure that this is an aberrant occurrence, that it doesn't happen again. And I think he would be right to do so. Um, maybe it was a norm that was understood that people wouldn't share this kind of information, but I think it needs to have some real teeth. I have a listener just emailed me and said, could the person be prosecuted? This is not necessarily a criminal offense. It's unethical through the, in terms of the, you know, the space of judicial procedure. Right. Am I wrong? I don't, I don't believe it could be characterized as theft or I don't think that we have a law that kind of captures the nature of this wrong. But to your point, Rose, it certainly is a breach of protocol, and it certainly is a breach of norms, those unwritten rules by which um, clerks and justices are expected to uh, adhere. I want to get to the actual uh, leaked draft in a moment, but you teach future lawyers, jurists, what conversations, what questions do they have for you? Have you all talked about this in terms of the process? Um, unfortunately for me, it happened after classes had ended for the semester, but in the context of the decision that was the subject of the leak, um, I've taught family law for 19 years mm -hmm. and I teach Roe and its progeny, all of those cases that follow Roe. And my final exam question for them last semester in December was to write their own opinion really? in, in the Dobbs case. Uh, 
they had, we had studied all the cases leading up to it. And I invited them to listen to the oral arguments, consider the arguments on both sides and to write opinions. I told them I wasn't grading them on which opinion they reached, Mm -hmm. but I was grading them on the quality of the legal analysis that led to that conclusion. And it was, it was the best grading experience I've had as a professor. Really? Yes. Wow. Well, there's no right answer, right? So they're free to be intellectually creative. Ah, Well, let me ask you, did you read, you read the leaked opinion? I did. Well, should the assumption be made that it is, well, in some form, it will probably more than likely be the final ruling expected this summer. Should we all assume that? Well, it's interesting because, as I said before, when the first draft comes out, it's, it's circulated. And so there can be significant changes between the first draft and the final draft. Um, and so as different justices weigh in and as there's a, um, I hate to use this term because it sounds so crass, horse trading mm-hmm. for votes, right? You are trying to persuade um, your, your colleagues to ensure that your position has the greatest number of votes on the court, especially when you're dealing with a, uh, a, a decision of this magnitude. So let's talk about that for a moment, because I, I, many listeners may find it fascinating. I know that I do. So you're saying that in this process that they go back and forth through the draft to try to persuade or, or they counter each other. They don't pick yeah. up the phone or get on a Zoom call. They do this in the drafts. They do it through the drafts, but they also do conference, right? And the justices will sit down and talk to each other. And they will also conference individually going, um, you know, I don't know how they do it in the context of COVID, but conversations with a justice who may have an issue with a particular legal argument or the way it's described or the language that's used. Um, and that may influence whether judges other justices will write concurring opinions or dissenting opinions. I mean, it is a process. So that first draft can be very different from the last final draft that's published. And for many folks are wondering, well, is this sort of common, maybe not necessarily regarding Roe versus Wade, obviously, but the process of how the Supreme Court of the United States can overturn, in a sense, overturn itself from a previous ruling. We're talking 50 years ago now. Take our listeners through that. This is not, should folks really be alarmed that this process is even happening, that the Supreme Court could possibly overturn a previous ruling that it ruled upon? That's not, folks shouldn't be surprised, do you think? No, well, they shouldn't be surprised. And it's not always a a bad thing, I guess, depending on which side of the issue you're on. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson, Mm -hmm. which um, stated that there were no rules that, uh, that a Black person held that, that the court or any white person was bound to respect was overruled when Brown was just Brown versus board of education was decided um, making it unconstitutional to segregate in the context of education. And so the overruling process, and that was like a 96 year old precedent at the time. So depending on which side of the issue you're, you're on, the court overruling itself can be seen as positive or negative. Um, and we should know, I believe there have been some first amendment establishment clauses too and I'm not now I'm not a legal scholar y'all so don't say I heard but I, I read so but I, but we have had these um these decisions before but first let me ask you this when folks are talking about okay the legal the case that this is obviously referring to is that Mississippi case Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization what are the arguments in this case yes so there is a law in Mississippi that is at the heart of this um, case that was that is um, subject to a constitutional analysis. And the question is whether this law, which would ban abortions at, uh, after 15 weeks, which is pre-viability, and viability is the point at which a fetus is determined to be able to live outside of the woman's body. Mm-hmm. That line was established in Roe at somewhere between 24 and 28 weeks. And so this ban on abortions that occur after 15 weeks could also occur pre-viability. And therefore the argument is that it's unconstitutional. Now, let me stop you there because I want to go back down to the role of the clerks because I'm curious then 
the justices, if not only doing their own research, are they relying on the clerks and how much research are they doing in terms of, because this is debatable too. And Lord knows it's a whole nother conversation about when life begins. That's not what this segment is about folks. Don't email me. So for the clerks and the justices, they have to research all of that. But if it's inconclusive, can you understand a listener saying, well, how can they then even make it a ruling? Well, so what the clerks would do um, under the direction of the justices is they would look at the legal landscape. They would read all of the cases that led up to Roe, but also the cases that apply Roe after it was decided. And there's a framework. Um, and a lot of these standards and rules and laws can be interpreted toward different conclusions mm -hmm. with respect to the constitutionality of a right that is not explicitly provided for in the Constitution. And that's where the gray area is. That's what made it such a great exam question. But the problem is that women in this nation have come to rely on this right to control their bodies for 50 years. I mean, the, the law is as old as I am, mm -hmm. right? And so you're invalidating something which is destabilizing for our society and takes away something from women that they've come to rely on and shape their lives around. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Georgia State University Professor of Law, Tanya Washington, and we're kind of breaking down all of these optics around that leaked Supreme Court draft regarding opinion regarding Roe versus Wade. And Professor Washington, I read something where there were some legal scholars actually kind of debating on whether or not Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided to begin with. What have you been hearing or reading about this? Well, uh, Justice Alito says as much in this first draft that it was wrongly decided. And, and the, the argument that it was wrongly decided rests in uh, the fact that abortion is not explicitly provided for in the Constitution. And so when it was interpreted to be a fundamental protected constitutional right, that reasoning was based on um, something called constitutional penumbra, which is the uh, the shadow that is cast by rights that actually are articulated in the Constitution, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Nineteenth, the Ninth Amendment. So these these shadows that ground the right to privacy do not provide a really firm constitutional basis for a right that matters so deeply to so many women, and so. What many of us would have wanted to see that do consider um, the right uh, to choose to be constitutionally protected, we would have liked to see the court actually shore up the constitutional grounding of that right. Understand that if they find that Roe is not constitutional, that also makes other rights that are not explicitly provided for in the Constitution vulnerable as well. Interracial marriage marriage itself is not articulated in the um, Constitution. Sexual privacy and intimacy mm -hmm. not articulated in the Constitution. So all of these other rights that aren't specifically articulated are also going to be equally vulnerable to constitutional invalidation. When we read this line that's actually in the opinion, quote, it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Meaning we should assume that meaning let's kick it back to the states. Yes. Is that what we should take from that? So that is absolutely it's uh, I refer to that as an institutional competency argument that the court is saying we as a, a as an independent judicial body are not authorized to make this determination. It's a political question and state legislatures um, under the authority of federalism should should be the ones to make this decision based on the voting electorate. Um, but there are certain issues that are so important that we don't need to have a patchwork quilt of different laws across the state. Mm -hmm. Right. So same sex marriage was one of them. We don't want people to be able to marry marry in this state, but the marriage isn't recognized in another state. There are those kinds of issues, and I think reproductive rights is among them, that are so important that we need a national consistent policy. I have a question from a listener who says, how much does the upcoming Roe decision have to do constitutionally with states' rights versus federal? You, you sort of just talked about that, but that's a very mm -hmm. good question. 
Well, I mean, it's a matter of interpretation, right? Uh, the, the justices who will sign on to Alito's um, brief, if it is if it is accurately reflected in the draft, would argue that this is a question of states' rights and that the federal government and the Supreme Court in particular have no role or should have no role in making these decisions mm-hmm. um, and that it violates principles of federalism to do so, but it also represents judicial activism by the court, doing more than it's supposed to do and usurping the authority of the legislative branch and of states' rights to regulate these areas of law. I have another question. I, I didn't. I, it's like you're teaching a class, a professor, so bear with me. A listener says, I'd be interested in knowing if there's research or proven instances of clerks directly trying to influence a court decision for their own interests, whether in her experience being you or at SCOTUS. That's a great question. I mean, when I was a clerk, I was really excited when my judge would ask me, like, what do you think? Right. Because what I think is not limited to the law. It's also based on my experiences, my perspectives, biases and prejudices. And I would argue that the justices have those as well, in addition to their clerks. So I think it's important to recognize that while these decisions should be shaped by precedent and legal reasoning, we are human beings. And so our thoughts about these things, especially something as profoundly um, personal and intimate as one's uh, bodily integrity, are going to be informed by both the opinions of the clerks and the opinions of the justices. We just hope that it's done in a way that um, adheres to legal norms, principles of stare decisis, and quality legal reasoning. So then, Professor, does it look like this will just be an ongoing fight that, let's say this opinion, this, this draft that we have now, let's say that is the opinion of the court, and then should we assume then that it could take some time because there will be immediate challenges and we'll just have this thing in, in, in different in different states and different courts for the next year or so, depending on who's running the state, who's in control yeah. of the state legislature? I mean, where we yes. go from I here? Mean, if the, that is the indeed the court, yeah. The battleground would move to the states and um, we would see uh, significant voter engagement um, with state legislatures across the nation. But there are 13 states that have trigger laws, which would automatically ban abortions if uh, the Supreme Court uh, invalidates and overturns Roe. There would probably be a response from Congress, mm-hmm. um, you know, pushing legislation if they have the votes to, you know, nationally legalize uh, abortion. There may be a response from um, President Biden in the context of executive orders that might offer some relief. He has a limited window within which to act, but there may be some um, actions that he can take. And then finally, as we wrap up, Professor Washington, you read that leak, that opinion. What else stood out for you regarding what the justice has to say? One of the comments that was made about the disproportionate numbers of Black women Um, who seek and take advantage of reproductive rights Mm -hmm. was um, interesting in terms of how it was interpreted, um, that somehow uh, recognizing Roe um, was akin to racialized uh, genocide Mm -hmm. for Black folks. We've heard that argument before. We've heard that from... We have heard that argument before, but it was clearly stated as like, part and parcel of the analysis. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be interested to me uh, to see whether it, uh, interesting to me to see whether it survives the, the edits that may have happened after this, this first draft. But I also want to highlight that the impact of this is going to disproportionately fall if Roe is overruled, disproportionately fall on black and brown um, and marginalized women of all colors who may not have the resources to exercise what what should be considered a fundamental constitutional right? Who knows? One of the of your law students that you talked about in terms of the the papers that were written, the exercise that you gave them. But when you are reviewing these arguments and you tell them you're not grading it based on their, you're grading mm-hmm. it based on the, the legal scholarly of it. I don't know if that's the right terminology. Yeah. Uh, what does it say about the future then uh, of for our future jurists here? And and who knows? One might be on the Supreme Court. One of them might. Um, I was really impressed with the answers that were given um, across the board 
Some people said Roe should be overturned. Some people said Roe should be preserved. Some people said that the Mississippi law should be invalidated, but Roe should be um, tweaked in terms of its application. I mean, I gave them free reign and they rewarded me with really well thought out um, answers. So it was, it was the joy of seeing my students actually um, spread their intellectual wings and, and engage in the analysis that we've been studying all semester. So should we give a collar pop to you and to the Georgia State School of Law? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> collar, collar pop noted. Yes. Georgia State College of Law is the best law school in the nation. Uh, always good to talk to you for providing good, not just but the history. You know, I think that's so important because a lot of times it's folks like me, we don't know everything, which is a great thing. So we allow, we uh, rely on you all to bring the knowledge and history. I love history. Thank you so much. From yeah, Georgia State you, from Georgia State University School of Law, Professor Tanya Washington, thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time. We'll have you back when we see what happens. Absolutely. I'd love to. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this year, the results of an NPR poll revealed something which may not be surprising, and especially coming off a wild and for some wacky 2020 presidential election outcome that fueled a horrific and violent attack on our nation's capital. Now, the poll results indicated that 64 percent of its respondents agree that American democracy is in crisis and at the risk of failing. But that was bested by 70 percent feeling the same about America itself. Of course, the poll came a year after the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack. And for some of you, this may be subjective. Not sure, but we'll talk about it. When defining the tenets that best describe an effective and diverse democracy, is there an answer for sure? I don't know. Well, it's an ideology that political scientist and author Yasha Monk explores in his new book, The Great Experiment, why diverse democracies fall apart, and how they can endure. And before y'all send me emails, let's listen and hear them out. Yashamaka joins the program now. Welcome. Thank you so much. You're a brave man writing about democracy. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, well, let, go ahead. Well, it's certainly, uh, uh, you know, is a depressing topic, but at least one that people care about right now. So. But let's let's go back to January 6th of 2021. And and Yasha, what, what were you doing? When did you find out all this was taking place? And what was your your thoughts back then? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was a grad student in political science, I learned that uh, there's lots of countries in the world where democracy is unstable, where events like this happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also learned that there's some countries where that's not supposed to happen. Uh, countries that are pretty affluent, but have a long democratic history, even if an imperfect one. Uh, and so if you fast forward the history of the United States by 25 or 50 years, you really don't need to think that something like this could possibly happen in America. And I actually made my name as a scholar by uh, doubting that consensus, by saying that we're seeing the rise of these authoritarian populists around the world, of people like Narendra Modi in India, of Recep Erdogan in Turkey, of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who really are challenging the fundamental uh, parts of our political system Mm -hmm. and who are saying, look, you know what? I truly represent the people. I really speak for the people. And anybody who disagrees with me is wrong, is a traitor. Um, And for me, uh, uh, January 6th was less surprising uh, because of my focus on that. Because if you come in like Donald Trump, saying that you alone truly represent the people, that anybody who disagrees with you, disagrees with you is illegitimate, um, that pushes you to saying, how can I lose an election? If I lose an election, I'm the people, I speak for the people, so there must be something wrong with the election, there must be fraud, there must be something else going on. In that sense, I was very saddened by January 6th, but I wasn't altogether surprised. So you say you wasn't surprised. Are you surprised then that even here on this day, May 4th, 2022, we are still, because now we're in a major election year, and folks are still using not only January 6th, but saying that the presidential, the 2020 presidential outcome was not fair, that it was stolen, that it was fraudulent, and that there is a, a surprisingly large percentage of folks who actually believe that. 
And I believe that 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 President Donald Trump had it taken from him. So so I'm somewhat surprised by how widespread that view is. But actually, when you go back uh, in American history for the last 20 or 30 years, there's always been a significant percentage of a losing party supporters who said this president is illegitimate. Um, so, so that's not entirely new. What I think is different is the attempt by uh, you know institutional players with real power uh, to undermine trust in the electoral system. So in fact, there's a lot of people saying, that's not my president, he's elected illegitimately. That's not entirely new. But the fact that you have people running for secretary of state in all kinds of uh, states across uh, America saying the 2020 election was stolen and uh, it, when it comes to 2024, I'm not going to certify the election under similar circumstances. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make my own determination of who truly won. And the way in which that actually threatens, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the integrity of uh, making sure that the person with the most votes in a particular state actually gets the electors from that state, that to me is is, is a new development that, that is even more concerning and that is more surprising as well. The Your book and the premise around it also not just talks about you know, what these tenets are, as I call them, of, of a diverse democracy. But you're also talking about why in, in some nations and, and, and in some societies, it's falling apart. So let's start, I guess, with the bad first. Is it falling apart because of the political leaders at the top or the people who have the power to elect those leaders don't feel empowered, if that makes sense? Or is it just a combination of both and everything in between is just messed up? Well, it's a little bit of both, but um, you know, when you look at the history of deeply ethnically and religiously diverse societies, uh, you have democracies that were very screwed up. You had democracies that perpetrated deep injustices, like the American Republic in the first centuries of its existence with slavery and Jim Crow mm -hmm. and so on. But you also had lots of non-democracies that had similar problems, right? Um, and so I think that there's something deeper in human psychology going on here. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is of the social psychologist Henry Teifel, who wanted to understand what it is about groups that makes the members so willing to favor the in-group over anybody who doesn't belong. And mm -hmm. he thought he was going to create these groups that were so silly, they were so devoid of meaning, that the members wouldn't actually uh, favor each other. And so he got a bunch of kids into the lab and he showed them a sheet of paper with about 150 dots on it. And he said, guess how many dots there are? And some said 120, some said 180. He divided them into underestimators and overestimators and had them play games against each other. And it turned out the underestimators started to discriminate against the overestimators. And the overestimators discriminated against the underestimators. So he failed in creating a group that was so silly that it wouldn't be motivating in that sort of way. But it showed us something very, very important, which is how easily that kind of group formation can take place and uh, how strongly it pushes people uh, to those kinds of behaviors. And so we've seen again and again in history that some of the worst injustices uh, pitted different groups against each other, often along the lines of race, ethnicity, religion, mm -hmm. uh, culture, uh, that caused some of the worst wars, civil wars, genocides, forms of ethnic cleansing uh, throughout history. That is why it's actually hard to build diverse societies and diverse democracies. Well, in fact, you take the reader through these different phases and you you start with history. And, and, I, and I guess for most folks, that's understandable because in order before you start talking about the process or the vision or the optimism, you also have to paint sort of how we've gotten here as a society overall. What do you think people get wrong about what a, quote, diverse democracy should look like? Oh, that's a great uh, that's a great question. I think um, there are two ways of going wrong. So one is a way that perhaps I myself fought in the past, which is to say uh, groups have wreaked such terrible damage in, in history. You know, so many of these worst conflicts were because it was my group against your group. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps we should get people to give up in groups altogether. Perhaps the future should be one in which people just identify as individuals or perhaps as kind of cosmopolitans who care equally about everybody in the world, mm -hmm. uh, rather than as members of particular religious or ethnic or cultural groups. And I think that that is unrealistic um, because uh, most people uh, do give great importance uh, to the culture of the parents, to their grandparents, to mm -hmm. the religious beliefs they have, of course, and to some extent also 
uh, to their ethnic group, especially that ethnic group has uh, experienced uh, oppression in the in the past. And that's something that also can make up the richness of a country. I think one of the wonderful things about America is that it does contain these groups. So that's one error. Now, the other error is going to be other extreme. It is to say we should give up on having a, a common culture and a common country uh, altogether. And you see in countries like Lebanon, uh, uh, what the impact of that is, because mm -hmm. it basically means uh, that all of your life uh, opportunities are constrained within your group, that members of these different groups can't uh, be meaningful friends, they can't marry each other, that they can't be business partners together, um, that sometimes even the laws to which you're subject depend on the group into which you're born. And so that's going in the other extreme. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a society in which we recognize the, the, the dignity and the importance of groups but base the society on the rights and the uh, duties of individuals so that I have the ability to remain a member of my group, but I can also leave my group. I can also strike out my own. I can also disagree with my parents about the kind of life I want to live. And that double liberty has to be at the, at the base of our society. But our lived experiences that we all have, and we all have different lived experiences, and it could be from how we're raised in a certain community. It can be from what we gather from our parents. So it sounds like also you're saying there needs to be this level of acceptance. Some will say maybe tolerance, because when you say tolerance, that's kind of that's still sort of a, a a word that's like, well, I don't want to. Sounds begrudging, yeah, right? You're still wrong, but I'm, you know. So acceptance of the different ideologies, but that can be problematic too, because in at some point, when it comes to the democratic process of electing leaders, leaders have to give or these candidates. They have to lay out what their ideology is. And even if they say, but I'm tolerant or I'm accepting of this other, these other folks, for some who want to follow them, they say, it's not good enough. You need to come out against this and come out against that. And that's a problem. And I know we're not going to solve this in the last 15 minutes, <laughs> Yasha, but that is at the core of why there's, there's so many issues when it comes to how we should be living as a, in a democratic state, small d. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talked about how experiences shape how we see the world. Um, uh, and there too, there seems to me be sort of two relatively uh, extreme positions where uh, some people say, we don't, you know, we're all equal and, and, and we don't have to listen to each other particularly because it doesn't make a difference who you are in this society. And that's clearly wrong, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the experiences that somebody has in, as a woman in our society or as a black person in our society are different. Uh, from the experiences that I have as a as, as a white man. Now, I think there's also another extreme which says that we'll never be able to understand each other and we'll never be able to communicate. Um, and so we should simply sort of defer to each other or defer to uh, the positions or, or, or the views of those who are sort of most oppressed. But I think that understates the extent to which we can communicate, to which mm -hmm. I can, for example, listen to the experiences of, of my female friends. And when they say that they're being harassed in particular ways on the subway or on the bus, mm -hmm. I may not know exactly what that feels like, but I know enough about what that feels like to understand that that's an injustice and that in the kind of society I want to live in, uh, that injustice shouldn't, shouldn't be there. So we can have a much more substantive form of political solidarity, which is based in listening to each other, which is always going to be a difficult thing, um, but which is possible. So I, I'm hoping for... Uh, form of political solidarity, and we'll never get there entirely, mm -hmm. um, but in which uh, we actually have shared ideals and we listen to each other enough, but we won't completely agree, mm -hmm. but we have some amount of real grace. We have some amount of real compassion for each other's uh, experiences and points of view. I have an email from a listener that says, Rose, in the era of gaslighting and conspiracy theories, we will never get to logical consensus ever. What do you make of that? Well, look, I don't think we'll ever get to logical consensus. Politics is never entirely logical and <laughs> democratic politics has never been logical. Um, uh, I do think we sometimes underestimate uh, how irrational people have been in the past. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I hear from a lot of my friends and, and they have a point that the rise of social media and, and the Internet has made it easier for these crazy conspiracy theories to mm -hmm. spread. And, and there's a truth to that. Uh, but when you look at serious polls, about 10% of people today uh, believe in something like QAnon. About 10% of people in 1999, when the internet was really in its infancy, believed that the moon landing was fake. 
Um, so we've had these deeply irrational beliefs in our politics for a long time. We'll continue to have them. The important thing is to be able to win over the majority of people um, who, who decide elections. Um, uh, I worry less about the Trump super fans mm -hmm. than I worry about some of the people who may have voted for him uh, begrudgingly or may have voted for him because we believed some of his outsized promises. We need to be able to reach those people in order to make sure our democracy is safe. But the, the real Trump super fans, they're never going to change their mind. And that's fine. It's about the majority of society. If this is a quote, and I, and I read this was part of into the core of your book, if you know, if we're experiencing this global recession of democracy, what role can super nations play in all this? Particularly when you look at the U.S., because we get, as some folks would say, we have our own issues. So how can we be a template, or, you know, or, or a blueprint for other nations? Although some would argue it's it's better than than a lot, but still, you know, we have our issues as well. What role can the U.S. play globally in terms of being this this model for for a democratic state? Yeah, look, I mean, I certainly think that uh, because of the problems in the United States, we don't get to go around and tell other people uh, what to do. And uh, that point has been true for a long time, but it's particularly true after four years of uh, Donald Trump. Um, so the best we can do is to sort out our own society. Um, uh, but at the same time, we should also recognize that by the standards of uh, world history and the standards of our own history and the standard of many other societies in the world today, uh, what we're doing in the United States is quite remarkable. We certainly don't have true equality, mm -hmm. um, but we are closer to having real equality between uh, different ethnic and religious groups uh, than, than most societies in the history of the world. And we have, despite significant step backs and despite uh, the threat from uh, uh, a Republican party that is less and less committed to democratic norms, uh, made some significant progress uh, on this over the last decades. I think um, when you compare uh, what America looks like today to what it looked like 50 or 100 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, that's a stark uh, contrast. And even though we need to be very upfront about the injustices today, I think we're actually uh, not being true to the suffering of past generations mm -hmm. uh, when we talk as though there had been no progress. Well, in your book, you are challenging the reader to understand what role citizens and policymakers can play in all this. Let's start with the policymakers, because for some, therein lies the problem. <laughs> for some, therein lies... <laughs> for many. Yeah, therein lies the problem. If I, I asked you earlier what folks get wrong about a diverse democracy. Well, let's talk about some of the tenets, then, of an effective diverse democracy. What's at the top of that list? Well, I think the background conditions have to be there, right? If I feel really frustrated in the world, if I have a sense that um, I'm not doing better than my parents were and I'm worried about my children's fate um, and I know that if I get sick tomorrow, I might go bankrupt and the politicians aren't listening to me and everybody hates each other, you know, I switch on cable news and everybody's just shouting at each other, uh, that puts me in a bad place. And so then when a neighbor moves in and perhaps that neighbor is an immigrant and has a slightly nicer house and a slightly bigger car, uh, I might say, why does he deserve that? Mm -hmm. Right? Why does he live better than me? This, this seems wrong. Um, if you live in a society in which most people have a sense that they're making economic progress, they might not have everything they want, they might not be billionaires or even millionaires, but uh, they lead better lives with more opportunity than their parents did and they're optimistic for their children. They know that there's uh, a welfare state in place, which ensures that when they get sick, uh, they're taken care of. When they're old, they're going to have a decent life. They have a sense that there's politicians who who listen to them and uh, that they are, uh, you know, taking seriously uh, uh, by the elites of a country, that mm -hmm. they're respected. That makes it much easier to say, hey, this new neighbor comes in and perhaps they're different, perhaps they're an immigrant, but I'm doing well and I wish them well too. But you also make a point to tell the reader that it's not just one particular one particular major party it's it's in a sense the two major ones obviously in the u.s are democrats and, and republicans you make clear to the reader that both have some work to do in terms yeah of, and i think go ahead and one of the areas on that i think is uh, this belief that demography is destiny which has become uh, shared it's the one thing that conservatives and liberals or democrats and republicans still agree on 
Um, and I think it's uh, actually a pernicious view of the of the future. Um, uh, it drives a lot of a demographic panic on the right and the far right. We think, oh my God, you know, the country is changing and uh, our base is white voters. And so as white voters become less influential, we're going to lose elections. I think it also drives some of the uh, triumphalism on parts of the Democratic Party who think that the only uh, need to sort of uh, mobilize the core voters, whom they often misunderstand, they assume they're very progressive when, when that's not necessarily the case, um, and victory is going to fall into their laps. Now, I don't want to live in a country in which I can walk down the street of Atlanta and know who you're voting for by looking at the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. I don't want a country in which the main political division is by race. That is the case to some extent today, but not as fully as people think. We've started to see a little bit of change in that, uh, actually, uh, uh, Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election because he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white demographic, among African-Americans, but particularly among Asian-Americans and especially more, even more among, among Latinos. And I actually think that that is a positive development. We want a political system in which both parties genuinely try to appeal to voters uh, of any ethnicity. As we wrap up, uh, Yasha, what, what has drawn you to this work? in this space here as a political scientist and author? Well, listen, I come from, from a family that has experienced what uh, it means when diverse societies fall apart mm -hmm. uh, for, for generations that have yeah. uh, been murdered, that have been expelled from their country. Um, and so this is a topic that's, that's, that's very personal to me. And as a new American citizen, I'm very aware of what it meant in America's past when we when we got uh, this 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 question wrong with with slavery and Jim Crow and other injustices. So, um, you know, if we want to uh, keep off the danger to our democracy, we need to actually have an idealistic, forward-looking vision for a society that most of us would actually be excited to live in, and that's what I've tried to 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 create in 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 this book in the Great Experiment. And that is political scientists. And author Yasha Monk talking about his book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. He'll be in town tomorrow at the Atlanta History Center to talk about his new book. That is tomorrow at 7 p.m. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, as you always do. Send me an email rose at wabe.org and if you missed any of today's show it's always online the entire program at wabe.org slash closer look and you can also listen to closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as on our podcast so subscribe to closer look wherever you like and also a programming note we're going to be on a little bit of a vacation because we have earned it and <laughs> we deserve it so please bear with us closer look we'll return next Monday, unless there is some breaking news that we really know that we need to attend to, but never fear the WAB newsroom will be right there. So yes, we'll be away for a little bit, but we'll return next Monday, but you can also join me for a special housing, our region, which will take place this Thursday at the uh, Fulton County library. It's a conversation about, of course, housing. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott, and also congratulations to all of the graduates from Clayton State University this past weekend. I gave the commencement address. It was inspiring for me. Congratulations to all of you. Take care. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.